Welcome to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Eliza Wilson. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also podcasting as a part of the Tej FM network. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. Later in the show, we'll talk to Richmond-based journalist Peter Galaska about Virginia politics. Plus, we'll hear an interview with Vanessa German. But right now, we're joined here in the studio by Giles Morris. He's the executive director at Charlottesville Tomorrow, as well as Elliot Robinson, the news editor at Charlottesville Tomorrow, and Emily Hayes, a news reporter at Charlottesville Tomorrow. Today on Soundboard, we're going to be talking about one neighborhood in Charlottesville that is certainly in one way or another changing and affected by gentrification. So Emily, you wrote an article last week on a new Belmont apartment renovation and the community members who were displaced as a result. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so this is the Belmont Apartments on uh, Monticello Road. It's a uniquely close community that's getting broken apart as their apartment complex renovates. And after it's changed hands, it was a family-owned apartment complex since the 70s. So it's sort of this two-story brick building, about 22 apartments there. I met Delma Buchanan, who got this eviction notice in March, and she has been there since the 70s, and she said that the first thing she did was uh, like sit down and start crying and like have a panic attack, basically. And she called her doctor to say, like, I need to see you immediately, but didn't feel like she could drive because of what she was experiencing. So she said that she was one of 14 who had gotten these eviction notices. I wasn't able to confirm that with the landlord, but the Legal Aid Justice Center confirmed nine by door knocking. So um, the landlord says these are badly needed renovations. They are too much to be able to do while people are in place. And they're going to spend a lot of money on it, so they'll have to probably raise rents or they can't confirm that people will be able to stay after they've done their renovations. The other part of this is this is one of just a few apartments in the city that had these, they had like $500 to $800 rents. That's pretty rare. Luckily, the lady I spoke to, Miss Buchanan, was able to find another um, apartment, but there's not enough space for all 22 people who had gotten so close. I've heard a ripple effect of this story across, you know, since it got published. For example, um, city council candidates running in, in this year's election have started talking about, you know, is there, can they create a fund to buy these kind of apartments bef- if they're in danger of getting sold? Yeah, this is just one example of the ways that Belmont is changing. And Elliot, you wrote a piece on the Lyman Street homes that are going in. Will you talk a little bit about those? Uh, yes, the uh, person who owns the property, Bruce Wardell, he's been attempting to do something with this small parcel since at least 2013. It's a very small parcel. It's by the uh, railroad tracks on the northern edge of Belmont, Lyman Streets, between Goodman Street and Douglas Avenue. He originally had a plan to put up an apartment building, and because of the size of the lot, it wouldn't have been that large. But there was pushback from neighbors. He went back to the drawing board, had another presentation in 2014 for another apartment building. City Council rejected that at the time. So it's reached the point that the only idea he could have to fit something on the property were these three contemporary cell homes. They're going to be about more than 2,000 square feet each. And because of their size and the renderings, 
of the buildings, the style of them, they're most likely going to be fairly expensive housing and they would they have the option of having accessory units on the ground floor, but as uh, one of the planning commissioners had mentioned that this doesn't really solve any density issues in the city where we went from a place where we could have had six apartments with a lower price point, we're getting three homes with a higher price point. And this is something we've talked about a lot, and we've talked a little bit about Belmont with crossings to Giles. Do you want to kind of pull back and give us a little bit more context or implications of this? Sure. Well, I mean, I think someone's got to write the Belmont blues now because uh, it's just one of these uh, neighborhoods that has sort of uh, moved from being essentially the historically working class white enclave on the south side of town through gentrification, renewal. I would say it's all over but the shouting in terms of gentrification in Belmont now, but you still have pockets of original residences and original communities that have hung on. And also you have, I think, you know, essentially a very dense neighborhood built around bungalow-style homes that have grown up and now increasing pressure from developers to create more density, apartment buildings, a bunch of big buy-right developments in play in the neighborhood. So now the neighbors who have, you might say, gentrified the neighborhood are under pressure themselves with parking, with um, life, quality of life issues, noise, you know, just uh, it's a neighborhood that has grown so fast and so dramatically and has been so attractive and has driven sort of a lot of the growth of like the downtown identity into new areas. Um, and now it's got sort of got all those tr- all those problems happening all at once. Right. Um, both the quality of life issues for the people who have moved in to make it their new home. And then also this continuous pressure on longtime residents um, who you know are, are increasingly being priced out and or displaced, and then new development pressures um, on the uh, on the sort of underused parcels um, and some of the buy right development uh, properties. Like uh, I think Riverbend has a large apartment complex that's uh, for the area right behind Moss that's going to bring even more people to the neighborhood. So um, I think it's just it's kind of a a really interesting lens on many of the problems we are experiencing in the city, and it pits people with different interests against each other. Uh, longtime residents who need to maintain affordability and a sense of community, um, new residents who have come into a new ha- neighborhood, invested a lot into it to make it a, a place with tremendous quality of life and a walkable downtown who are seeing that quality of life erode because more pe- even more people are coming. I, I would also say that definitely some of the big, aside from just general pressure within the city because it's become a very attractive place to live, there's also, um, there was a rezoning that happened, I think in 2003, that made Belmont part of this long corridor that starts up at West Main that, that's mixed use. And so that allowed some of these restaurants that really made Belmont a particularly attractive place. And I, I think it's fair to say that it's also unique in the sense that it has a lot of these pressures that Charlottesville has, but it's it's it, the conversation is not um, a black-white racial equity conversation in Belmont in the way it is in 10th and Page or in Cherry Avenue or in Rose Hill. Um, it, it's really a um, a, a conversation about what the city had been and one of its, you know, working class white neighborhoods and how it it changed over time. And I think that's unique um, to Belmont in a certain way. But it also shows that the neighborhoods that 
gentrify and gentrify quickly tend to be on the south side of town because of the way they've been zoned. The gentrification has already happened. What do you guys think the future of Belmont looks like? What's going to happen with these new homes and apartments going in? Is the story already kind of just set for Belmont? I think it is. The apartments that I've seen have been sort of geared for young professionals, sort of affordable in a way that doesn't really, you know, doesn't meet necessarily a lot of people's definition of affordable. I think the comprehensive plan and rezoning that the city is largely going through is another way that people want to sort of intervene in in these kind of trajectories. But yeah, we'll have to see how those go. I think there'll be a little bit of pushback from some of the residents because Belmont is becoming one of those last few places where you can get housing that isn't a relative affordable level on certain streets and that progress is marching closer and closer to where they are. That seems to be in the background of part of the reason why a proposal to build apartments on Nassau Street near the wastewater treatment plant received some pushback was that those buildings most likely would attract a higher price point and there's people who live in smaller houses there and then there's the question of the future of a mobile home community that's on Carlton Avenue that there's been development around them and right across the street for them in Arnold County they have this plan for their industrial zone and the redevelopment of woolen mills and people are seeing now they're seeing pressure coming from both directions. Yeah, the Carlton Mead Corridor is a really interesting kind of frontier of a lot of these conversations. And, you know, I think the other thing to me that's interesting about Belmont and some of these discussions with pressures is, you know, I think it's pulling a different set of people into conversations about how you do control growth and design growth. Because, you know, the first group of people that move into these neighborhoods to gentrify them aren't that out of touch with the neighborhood they're coming into in many cases. Um, They come because they like the community. Then they bring new resources to it. Then they attract more people. And then new businesses come in. And then new property developers come in. And it then affects the quality of life of the first cohort of people who moved in and and it changes the way they value their property and then i i think it also brings pulls them into some of these conversations that maybe weren't so immediate to them become more immediate to them um uh, and i think you know belmont has has the potential to do that very active neighborhood association a lot of active developers big and small uh, a lot of active realtors who have put a lot into that neighborhood and its story and we don't even get to Clark Elementary School, which is the neighborhood elementary school, which is underperformed historically, and now is going to be the school for all the people you know who who come into that neighborhood. Like a lot of times, we have these conversations, and it's like we're talking about Charlottesville again, and all the stuff we're going through together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it will be interesting to see what will happen, and I'm sure this will not be the last time we're talking about Belmont on Soundboard. Well, thank you guys for coming on. Once again, that was Giles Morris, the executive director at Charlottesville Tomorrow, Elliot Robinson, the news editor at Charlottesville Tomorrow, and Emily Hayes, a news reporter at Charlottesville Tomorrow. Find out more and read the latest at seavilletomorrow.org. Thanks for coming on, guys. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Soundboard on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Teej FM network, T-E-E-J dot F-M.
Well, now we turn to Virginia state politics, and as we do, we talk with our correspondent over in the Richmond area, reporter Peter Galaska. Peter, good morning. Good morning. So I want to talk about uh, the elections going on. There's state elections and, of course, big presidential election. Uh, the first quarter of 2019 campaign finance reports are in. What have we seen in these? Well, what's interesting, we've seen that um, uh, usually, um, you know, fundraisers, you know, that the government's uh, governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general can't really fundraise during the general assembly session, but they do a big spate of fundraising, raising after it's over. So for the first quarter, since it was a short session, there is practically nothing. I mean, uh, Northam, it's something like 2500 bucks. Whereas for the same period in 2015, Terry McAuliffe, former governor, had 530,000. McDonald, a Republican, 428,000. Justin Fairfax, who has been accused uh, by two women of sexual assault, raised no money. And there's also some reports, you know, as far as running for state offices. You know, in, historically in Virginia, Republicans tend to have a much larger war chest, treasure chest, when it comes to campaign finance here. Uh, Democrats are starting to close that gap, but not completely. What do we take away from that? Well, I, I think there's several things that have happened. Um, their Democrats are facing a real strong headwinds in, in the fact that all three of their top elected officials have, are facing some kind of scandal slash embarrassment. What's interesting is that the Democrats are really you know, closing the gap, as you said, and so the issue is whether the Democrats can continue their inertia forward in the face of all of this negative publicity. Northam's tactic has been to lay low and not to say much. And uh, it's also interesting a couple things. Terry McAuliffe, uh, the former governor, popular governor, Democrat, had been a candidate, maybe candidate for president. Now he's saying, I'm not going to do it. Which I, maybe there's a link there, that he really wants to shore up Democrats in Virginia right now. We'll see. And I imagine there's there's two kind of like, like both push and pull factors on that. I mean, one is what you just mentioned, that, you know, that leadership can't really seem to come from, from the top elected officials right now, from the executive branch. No, of course, it doesn't really matter in the case of Northam, because in Virginia you can't succeed yourself as governor anyway, but you still can be a major uh, you know, figurehead and leader for fundraising. What I think that, the, the, even though just about every Democrat in the state wanted Northam's head for the uh, blackface thing in the yearbook, uh, when it first happened, uh, their tra- tactic now when they realize that Northam's just not going to go immediately is just to shut it down, be quiet about everything, and try to emphasize younger, um, newer candidates. For example, like some of the, the people who um, won the uh, congressional races, the, the three women in, in November. Right, right. Abigail Spanberger and... Uh, Luria and... Luria. and uh, yeah. And I imagine, too, with, with uh, uh, Terry McAuliffe looking at the presidential campaign field on the Democratic side, you know, there's like, what, 18,000 candidates right now? <laughs> well, I mean, it's just so weird. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, the, the whole thing is that Trump and his weirdnesses have really sparked a, a huge interest in politics. And, and you've got, you know, the trouble now with the Democrats is they, they may have too many candidates instead of too few. And they're already splitting into, you know, sectors by age, by race, by everything else, by identity. And you're seeing it on down the line. Hmm. Well, one of those candidates is Beto O'Rourke, narrowly lost his Senate bid against Ted Cruz in Texas last year. Uh, He is certainly, you know, campaigning and campaigning hard. He was stumping in Norfolk, also in Williamsburg at William & Mary, and then in Charlottesville here at UVA. Um, What was he saying? What's our takeaway? Well, I mean, he's popular. Um, He's uh, attractive. I mean, he's a smart guy. 
Um, he represents, as I mentioned before, the um, the younger, newer, fresher-faced kind of candidate. Pete Buttigieg the same way out of uh, Indiana. He's gay, but he's also you know been Harvard, Oxford, in the Navy, and has a good rep as a, as a mayor and as a congressman. And and so does Beto O'Rourke. And so um, both have fairly similar policies about things such as universal health care, but they tend to represent a, a more leftist, more progressive line than, say, not like Bernie Sanders or anything, but certainly Joe Biden, who is older and is more tied in, of course, with uh, the Hillary Clinton faction and the Bill Clinton faction. Now, you and I hadn't talked about the Bernie factor uh, uh, off air yet, but um, I wanted to bring it up. I just read a poll this morning uh, looking at if the election were held today kind of stuff. Uh, finding a, a pretty substantial amount number of people who who really do support Bernie still. Um, not all 2016 Bernie voters, but actually a lot of other people. Well, you know that's an interesting point because um, I remember going through the 2016 election. This is just a local anecdote, but Richmond is famous for its murals that um, newer artists, younger artists, put up on the sides of buildings. And someone near Broad Street, which is like the major trek in Richmond, put a really cool mural of Bernie doing a dance. And that got in papers throughout the country. And there really was, at least among the young artistic crowd in Richmond, a real burn. I mean, they really (laughs) didn't like Hillary, and they really did like Bernie. And I think that's still there, and it's growing. I mean, and the other problem is with the other guys we've mentioned, um, like Kamala Harris and the others, and, and of course the two men we just mentioned, none of them really has that much of a, of a, a grabber. You know what I mean? I mean? They're all good people and everything. They've got great resumes, but I mean, Bernie's just sort of special. Well, take me through a little bit. I mean, Virginia is one of the states that votes in the Super Tuesday primary uh, relatively early in 2020. Um, you know, what, what are we going to look forward to over the next you know, 10 months or so? Well, I mean, the obvious thing is, for Virginia, since it's a bellwether and, um, you know, we're having t- complete state legislative elections, um, that's, that's the obvious ticker point. That's going to really, that's why those elections are so important, because if the Democrats who have been enjoying a very powerful role screw up, and if there are more scandals, um, and, you know, involving anybody, Fairfax, Northam, or Herring, or anyone else, then it's going to really hurt the Democrats nationally. I mean... Luckily for the Democrats, this mess happened, you know, pretty early in the uh, 2019 series. So that's number one. You've got to see what happens in the elections. Then after that, you, you just sort of see what happens where the quarters lie and everything else and go from there. Right. And a lot of candidate visits coming to uh, the Old Dominion in the next few months. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, climate change here. There's a big consequence of, of that at the local level that doesn't get talked about a lot, and it's the spike in really strong storms and just heavy, right. heavy rainfall incidents. Um, there's a report uh, over at Virginia Mercury this week about how uh, all that heavy rainfall, all those incidents are leading to more flooding, flash flooding that can kill people like uh, one did in, in Crozet here not too long ago, right. um, and overflowing sewers. Well, I think that, the, I mean, it's, which is interesting, I mean, you have, you know, you're going to have uh, episodic um, bad storms like Agnes way back in the day. And, but what's happening now is that you're not only having strong weather events with a lot of wetness, you're having consecutive wetness. For example, in the Richmond area, um, in May and June, the city had 23 inches of rain, the highest ever recorded for consecutive months. And that is the, the cumulative effect of a number of storms that just produced rain after rain after rain after rain. I mean, it's even affecting my lawn because I'm losing trees from so much rain. Still am. 
And um, so this is the kind of thing, this is what's new, and it affects things in a number of ways because, you know, a lot of, some cities have sewer systems that are sort of a bypass. They don't want polluted water from storm water, uh, floodwaters to stay on people's property too long. So they sometimes let the, the polluted water just go down downstream to get to flush it and get out of the area. That's becoming a problem. And um, there are other problems as well. Um, I mean, it's going to happen certainly in the Norfolk area with the military bases. Uh, this isn't directly related to Virginia, but it sort of is. Um, I read somewhere that, um, ironically, one of the reasons the, the military is angry about having to ship um, soldiers to the border under the Trump policy, immigration policies is that two very major air, uh, military bases, Tyndall Air Force Base, in Florida was nearly completely destroyed by a hurricane, and that was supposed to train advanced, new advanced uh, jet fighters. Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, which is linked very much with, uh, with Virginia bases, still has $3.5 or so billion dollars in uh, unfixed damages from another hurricane. And so it's going to affect more and more and more, you know, how the state does business and what it can do. And what is the result? I don't know. I mean, the Green Gas Initiative, Regional Green Gas Initiative in this state's not going anywhere. So we'll see. All right. And what do we do to sort of plan for resiliency, where we put all the people, where we put all the stuff? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you can't, you know, it's just going to be, it's sort of sad in a way because um, recent study shows that the Chesapeake Bay and its tributaries were finally getting healthier after years and years and years of effort. So anyway, we'll see. All right. Peter, thanks as always. Bye-bye. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in Richmond. WTJU and TJFM are both a service of the University of Virginia. Opinions expressed on the show are, of course, just that, opinions, not the positions of the University of Virginia. And now for Nathan Moore interviewing Vanessa German. Uh, Vanessa German, you are an artist, poet, activist, uh, sort of a citizen artist in some bios that I've seen of you. Um, Take me through what your work looks like, what your work is. My work is uh, alive inside a variety of media, several works, so I can create a body of sculpture and I can also perform that body of sculpture, and I will often photograph those sculptures in spaces where uh, they are activated because the kind of sculpture I create, I call contemporary power figures, so I'm making sculpture to do something. I'm making it to be active and alive and to contend with the world and to contend with intersections in the world. So all of the ways that I work can be activated simultaneously. And I'm creating work as a citizen artist. So as someone who thoroughly, romantically, courageously, lovingly believes in the power of art. So as a citizen artist, I'm going to apply that which I believe in most to the tasks that I experience personally and through the world that most need to be contended with. But at the neighborhood level and at um, in intimate ways, one-on-one, that's a good way for me to answer that question. Absolutely. And, and 
I'm struck by how you, you weave together a lot of different uh, media into an experience um, that's not just meant to be experienced and then move on, but really to inspire some kind of action. Um, yes. What, what, are you, what are you hoping people get out of, out of your, your body of work, and, and specifically maybe this, this sometimes we cannot be with our body's installation at the Fralin right now? So in any body of work that I create, I am hoping that people have the opportunity and are not obstructed from the opportunity to experience the work in a way that is alive for them. So if this means that the work is in an institution and like a museum or a community space, then I want the institution to make sure that as many people as possible can see the work and feel safe and comfortable and welcome to ask questions about the work and to have opportunities to engage um, with different levels of both intellectual curiosity, spiritual curiosity, uh, political curiosity, safely. So I want the work to be alive. I hope that the work is alive and active for people. And sometimes we cannot be with our bodies is uh, a very specific work that is activated um, through things that are very difficult. Um, they're very difficult for me. And I know that they're very difficult for other people because I've experienced other people in the installation. Uh, and it's a, it, it, sometimes it cannot be with our bodies as an installation that was inspired in part by the uh, deaths, the murders of several black trans women and uh, black women and girls. In my own city where I live in Pittsburgh, there's like this crisis of unsolved uh, murders of black women and girls, 15-year-old girls, 14-year-old girls, um, and there seems to be no sense of urgency about um, bringing these girls and these women and these trans women and these um, other children's lives to justice. Uh, and so this is a body of work that is... Um, a processing and a reckoning of that uh, these different narratives of black trans women, black women, black girls, um, black children who have been killed by the police, who have been murdered and nobody knows what happened to them, or they have been murdered. We know how they were murdered, but they get then continually slaughtered in the media. And there, there'll be children, if you think of like Tamir Rice, who was just 12 years old and got killed in the city park. And 1.3 seconds or like 1.8 seconds after the police pulled up to him. So like no opportunity to, for this child to say that he was even a child. So we have these um, incredibly like traumatic, tragic 
desks in the public realm around us, but not really um, a lot of public ways to reckon and to contend with the continual trauma and the grief and the horror and um, the sort of infectious unsafety that comes from realizing that you could just be somewhere doing the thing that you're supposed to be doing there and your life could be taken and justice might not come. There might be no sense of urgency for that. So how do you contend with that? And so sometimes we cannot be with our bodies is a difficult experience that contrasts the power and the beauty and the just the utter miraculousness of being alive on the earth, being the earth is deep. And so when our lives are taken from this incredibly, almost like this tsunami, this constellation of miracles and glory, and to be cut down and to not have justice on the side of it, it is almost disgusting that you would treat something so miraculous that way. So sometimes we cannot be with our bodies is an immersive installation that actually walks people through a ritual of reckoning. Once again, that was Nathan Moore interviewing Vanessa German. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Eliza Wilson. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Morwenna Laszlo and Jay Pun. And this is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or on our podcast home at TEEJFM. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Remember, April showers bring May flowers. Have a great week.